Hello, it's Thursday, September the 14th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio today here in the nation's capital, Tevi Troy. He's the CEO of the American Health Policy Institute, a best-selling author, and a frequent TV and radio analyst on Bloomberg, CNBC, CNN, Fox News, and the PBS NewsHour. I'm surprised you actually have the time to talk today, given that schedule. But, Tevi, thank you for coming in today. And this is the Good Timing Award because Donald Trump was busy last night. He was busy at the White House having dinner with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And somewhere along the course of their little Chinese dinner, apparently they came to some sort of agreement having to do with immigration. Uh, we don't know exactly what the details are, but one thing we do know is that some conservatives who really like Donald Trump are very upset this morning. Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me, and it shouldn't surprise anyone, that uh, you'll occasionally or frequently, depending on your perspective, be disappointed by Donald Trump when it comes to the conservative perspective. He didn't come out of the conservative world. He doesn't have a traditional conservative view. He's not like people like Ronald Reagan in the past who read National Review cover to cover. So he just comes at this with a different perspective. Also, when he's in a meeting with Pelosi and Schumer, who frankly have more of a grasp of the policy details, one could see him agreeing to things that his rhetoric may not comport with at other times. Right. Uh, you wrote a terrific column for Politico back in February, uh, the headline of which was How Trump Split Conservatives Three Ways, a guide to the new intellectual camps that could reshape American politics. I'm going to read a passage from this, and let's talk about where we stand today on this. And Here's what you wrote back in February. Quote, For analysts and longtime watchers of conservatism, this is a fascinating moment. A true horse race is emerging regarding the future of conservatism, and it is hard for anyone to know for certain how things will turn out. In some ways, it is reminiscent of the internecine conservative intellectual squabbles of of an earlier era in places like National Review. The arguments that helped define and solidify a movement in the 1960s and 1970s helped move conservatism towards governing and electoral successes in the 1980s. As fascinating as these divisions are within the conservative movement, these splits can also have important implications for the future of America. Whichever group wins over conservatism will likely dominate the Republican Party for the foreseeable future. So we are now sitting here in the middle of September. Who's winning? Well, first of all, Bill, that's a really great passage. I agree with every word of it. (laughs) Who is winning? It's too soon to tell. In this piece, I put out three groups. I suggest that you've got the never-Trumpers. These are people who were very critical of Trump in the campaign and remained critical of him after the campaign. Mm -hmm. You have the ever-Trumpers who were supporters of him during the campaign and seemed to back him with every policy shift in turn, although we may have seen a bit of an exception or he may have gone over the line if he made a deal on DACA. And some of the ever-Trumpers, and you and I were talking about uh, Laura Ingram, for example, was critical of him for that, and she's been a big supporter of him throughout until now. And then what I call, and what I think is the largest group, is the safe space conservatives. These are conservatives who are willing to criticize him when he goes wrong, although not that publicly, willing to praise him when he goes right, and are just trying to navigate their way through the administration and, and figure out where this thing all ends up. And I think that that makes sense to me that that's the largest category because things are so uncertain. All right, so if you think of those three camps as a horse race, if you will, handicap the horse race for us. That is a really good question, <laughs> which is why I hesitate for a moment. I think that the never-Trumpers have a problem in that 
they are betting on complete epic failure. Right. And if there's epic failure, then they could say, see, we were right. And there's something to that, and there are obviously challenges with the, the Trump administration, but it almost feels like you're rooting against your own team. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of good conservatives who are in the administration, and a lot of them are doing good conservative things. And you have, uh, it seems that uh, Trump is committed to putting good conservatives on the court. So I think they're in a a tough position. I put them as the underdogs, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the ever-Trumpers have a lot to defend if Trump, let's say, goes and spends a lot more money and opens up immigration and doesn't make real reforms. So I think they have some challenges as well. And then I, I think the safe spacers are, are making a safe bet in a way. So I, I guess if I'm handicapping, uh, I'm betting on the safe spacers. Right. So I think it was interesting about what happened last night or didn't have – this is the beauty of Donald Trump. You never quite know what happens because everything is being done in tweets and in secondhand knowledge and so forth. But if he did do as, as is indicated, which was in a nutshell, he told, um, he told Schumer and Pelosi, we'll go ahead and we'll continue DACA. And he will not be a border wall meantime. Now, the White House has been since backtracking on that, saying that the border wall has not been part of the discussions. We're not backtracking. But it looks like he's stepping into political reality, which is just that border wall is not going to get built anytime soon. So I think what's interesting here is, you know, unlike the previous meeting with Pelosi and Schumer, where he did what? He extended he extended the you know, federal, federal deficit, um, a fiscal issue. Now he stepped into immigration. And this is the buzzsaw of conservatives, first of all, for the ever-Trumpers. This is in large part what brought Donald Trump to the dance because he, from the beginning of his campaign, he embraced immigration. He talked about the wall and he talked about the murder of Kate Steinle and he made that his hobby horse. So you mess with that issue and you strike right at the heart of the ever Trumpers. I'm curious about the safe space conservatives though because the safe spacers, I think number one, see Trump as a means to an end. So they're happiest when Gorsuch, for example, gets nominated to the Supreme Court. And secondly, at the end of the day, as you said, they're making a calculation that the guy's not going to destroy the town. He's going to just go along, and perhaps he'll learn lessons as he goes along. So, so in this particular one, you can do glass half full or half empty. And the half empty side is, my goodness, he's going into a private room with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And politics is not a 50-50 agreement necessarily. But these people know a lot more about politics and governing than he does. And so the bargain, the deal becomes 60, 40, 80, 20, 90 to 10 by the time they leave that room. But the half full side is, well, this is how get things get done in Washington. It's progress. Yeah, I'm, I'm loath to take up that half full position yeah. given, given what we're seeing. But l- let me t- take a step back and, and put this in some context. I think Republicans in Congress have put us in this situation by showing that they can't pass things with their majorities via the reconciliation tool, which is the only way you can pass something with fewer than 60 votes in the Senate. They wouldn't, weren't able to pass the repeal and replacement of the ACA of, of Obamacare via reconciliation. It seems like they would have a tough time getting a tax bill through via reconciliation. They are, they are not able to put budgets together for the most part. So I think by showing that Republicans can't pass something on their own, they're telling Trump that the way to go forward is to deal with Pelosi and Schumer. And that puts a lot of power and a lot of leverage in the Schumer-Pelosi hands. And I think the Wall Street Journal editorial page has been incredibly eloquent laying this out, saying why every failure by the Republicans is just giving more power and more leverage to Schumer and Pelosi, who I must remind listeners are in the minority. They are in the minority and they don't have the the president of their own party. So they should be in a difficult situation, but they seem to be calling the tune. And that gets to the second point I want to make. 
which is I was talking to, and I really rarely say this kind of thing, but I actually happened to be talking to a Republican senator last night, and he was saying that when you have negotiations, when you have compromise, the other side has to give something too. That's what defines compromise. And on the health care negotiations, for example, the Democrats are all too happy to go for what are known as these stabilization dollars, dollars that would prop up the ACA, but they're not willing to give up much of anything in terms of flexibility or any reforms to the Affordable Care Act. And so if you're put in a situation where Democrats have leverage and they're not willing to compromise on any of their principles, and you have a president who likes to get good headlines and likes to make deals, then you're in a situation where the half-full people are bound to be disappointed. Okay. Let me run this uh, by you at another angle. Um, Unlike Barack Obama, unlike George W. Bush, even unlike Bill Clinton, this is a president who does not seem to have a certain philosophical base. Now, maybe Clinton, we need to be a little careful because Clinton was at all times triangulating and kind of, you know, balancing things and you know, playing both ends. But George W. Bush certainly was spawned from a certain, you know, political philosophy in Texas. Barack Obama certainly spawned from political philosophy. Donald Trump, though, not spawned from political philosophy. Donald Trump is a guy who was born of a political moment. He has vacillated greatly during his adult life in terms of where he is politically. So his coming to office, from a conservative perspective, it's a crapshoot. And, you know, I think we see on matters like this when he gets behind closed doors, especially with the minority party, you don't know what's going to end up because he's not necessarily rooted in a conservative belief. Well, yes, here's where I have to give the props to the never-Trumpers because they said this guy is not rooted in conservative beliefs and he, when challenged, will not necessarily stick to those conservative beliefs. When Republicans were watching a Ronald Reagan, for example, and again, they knew that he read National Review, that he was steeped in conservative thought, they knew that he would stick to certain core principles, even if he were willing to make compromises, which he did to pass things. George W. Bush also came from a particular conservative cast, was a big reader, was known to be a reader, had an intellectual infrastructure within the White House in terms of reaching out to conservative intellectuals and to getting input from them. And I think that's really important for a president. In fact, I've written about this, that every Republican president for the last 40 years has had some kind of intellectual advisor on the conservative side who brings in ideas and also represents the president to that conservative intellectual basis, which is so, so important to getting Republicans elected. And you don't really seem to have that with the Trump administration. Right. And I want to talk more about that. But let's close out on, on Trump and the conservative side. So let's assume that he has done some damage here now with the ever Trumpers and that 100%, 90% of ever Trumpers who backed him, that's going to start to whittle down. Now, what does he have to do with the safe space conservatives now to buck up their support? If you think of this ultimately as a balancing act, he was making a calculation coming into office that as long as I have the ever Trumpers in my corner and I can keep majority of the safe space conservatives on board, I don't care what the never Trumpers think. They just, they don't matter. But if he's going to lose ever Trumpers, he has to gain safe space conservatives. So, Tevi, what does he have to do for the safe space side? Is this, is this the obvious things like tax reform and more judicial appointments, or in other words, how does he how does he circle now to the right and push harder on the right to conserve to to convince those conservatives that he's still still one of them? Well, first of all, Bill, I have to say I don't think he's ever making this level of analysis in terms of where the various groups of conservatives are thinking. But we do that, and sure. uh, so I'm happy to do it. In terms of the safe spacers, you often hear justifications in terms of well, I'm not comfortable with Trump, but if we can get Health reform, tax care, uh, health reform, tax cuts, and 
continued uh, con- uh, conservative justices on the Supreme Court and in the, in the courts, I'm happy. Or we can get de- deregulation and uh, constant support of uh, Israel in contrast to the Obama administration, for example. I mean, there are certain things that unite conservatives. It's a smaller list than it used to be, but there are certain things that unite conservatives. And we can get those things, well, then we're okay. But to the extent that he doesn't deliver on those things, that makes it harder and harder. So I think delivering on conservative policy is the best way to keep the safe spacers. I don't think it's going to help with the never-Trumpers. And the ever-Trumpers, I think it remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have a Tevi Torres sitting in his White House right now. He doesn't have someone who we'd call an intellectual. Uh, when W. Bush was in office, for example, Karl Rove was called Bush's brain. David Axelrod, I'm not sure if he's an intellectual, but at least he would have been, as the as the strategist, he would have been sitting back and thinking through these big picture things about balancing out the party and so forth. But as far as we know, that person is not in this current White House right now. But there was somebody who maybe filled that role, and his name was Steve Bannon. And on August 21st, you wrote this article in Politico, the headline, Why the White House Needs Another Bannon. Uh, probably not the most popular thing to write in Washington, D.C., I would add, by the way, but kudos and, to And you. I don't pick the headlines. But. No, you don't. <laughs> but kudos to you for writing this. And let me read a passage from this, and then let's talk about uh, what is going on with the current White House. Here's what you wrote. Quote, For the past four decades, Republicans have viewed themselves as the party of ideas, and a crucial part of that self-perception has been having a person inside the White House to serve as a conduit to conservative thinkers. Ever since Richard Nixon, Republican presidents have installed a kind of resident intellectual who can help shape the president's vision, articulate that vision to conservative thinkers, and, importantly, warn the president of discontent from his key supporters in that conservative idea world. You continued, Steve Bannon wasn't a traditional liaison to that world, but there's no question he served this function for the Trump administration, keeping it connected to at least a portion of the national ecosystem of conservative thinkers that has provided significant benefits for Republicans over the years. If he is not replaced wisely, that absence would not only represent a break from that tradition, but would create a worrisome gap for Trump as he tries to get Republicans, Congress, and Americans on board for his agenda. Again, I agree with every word, but I would say that the piece was not a defense of Steve Bannon so much as a defense of the strategist position of having someone in there who cares about what's going on in the intellectual world, recognizes that it's important, and broadcasts messages from the administration to the intellectual world. I don't see Karl Rove, per se, as Bush's intellectual, and neither would he, but he had an office of strategic initiatives under him. There's a guy named Pete Weiner who ran that office, and, and Pete was responsible for reaching out to the intellectuals. He sent out these regular messages called Weinergrams mm-hmm. to pretty much anyone who is anyone in the conservative intellectual stratosphere, and he was explaining what the administration was thinking in a way that appealed to conservatives. And I think that's really important. We've had other people in that role in the past. Uh, Marty Anderson, a legendary Hoover scholar, unfortunately passed away, but he had that role under Reagan. And as far as I can tell, other than Bannon, there was nobody in the Trump White House who was doing that, who was doing that kind of regular outreach to conservatives. And I'm not sure there's anyone doing it now. Was there anyone who did that in the Bush 41 White House? That is an excellent question. I said because I worked on the reelect for the Bush 41 campaign, and that was a campaign in the presidency that was somewhat adrift. Now, people say what well, was adrift because he lost Lee Atwater, who was his campaign strategist, but I don't remember a presence inside that White House, Tevi, who was doing that level of thinking at that time. That is an excellent question, and I actually wrote a book about all this. It's called Intellectuals in the American Presidency. It was my first book. It came out in 2002, and it looked at every administration since 1960 and how they deal with the intellectuals. And Bush... 41 was an anomaly among modern conservatives, meaning from Nixon through through George W. Bush, in that he did not have this kind of intellectual 
thought leader in the White House. Now, someone was trying. Uh, Jim Pinkerton, mm-hmm. who was on the Domestic Policy Council, was trying, and he established uh, a set of principles. He called it the New Paradigm. But he was kind of mocked and belittled by Richard Darman, who was very powerful in the administration. He was the OMB head, and he called it, brother, can you paradigm? And he called it neo-neoism. So there was a sense from the beginning of that Bush 41 administration that there wasn't a lot of interest in ideas. And there was a legendary quote from a Bush transition official who, when asked about bringing conservatives in, said, our people don't have ideologies, they have mortgages. And that was seen as very dismissive of conservatives. So I think Bush did not have that, but I think it was to his peril. And I think it was partially responsible for his loss in 92. Interesting. So you look at the what absent Steve Bannon right now, who inside the White House is the closest thing to an intellectual Donald Trump would have? Two names come to mind, but I'll mention them. But I want to hear first from you if you if you have any thoughts on this. Actually, I'm dying to hear your two names because it's hard. I'm hard pressed to come up with them. Uh, So the first name is Stephen Miller who comes to Trump from, I believe, Jeff Sessions, and he is a speechwriter for Trump, and so he is a thinker, at least on conservative lines. Now, I don't know if he's too busy writing speeches to be doing kind of big-picture intellectual thinking or not, but he would seem to have that background. So I I don't know Steve Miller personally. Mm -hmm. The kind of people I talk about in my book and who are these intellectual leaders are people who tend to have a pre-existing intellectual reputation. They've written stuff. They were professors. They were thought leaders in some way. And so Miller doesn't fit that category. And he's had a couple of TV appearances, but I don't think people really have a sense of what Millerism is, per se. So uh, I'm not sure he fits in that category. Candidate number two, Michael Anton. Anton, I think, is a much better fit. Now, Anton wrote in the campaign uh, under a pseudonym, so he wasn't um, he wasn't out there publicly, right. but uh, he's associated with the Claremont School. Uh, he is someone who uh, has a pre-existing reputation. He's written a lot of articles for the Weekly Standard and elsewhere, and so he might be it. He is at the National Security Council, so it's a little different. And in terms, in, in my book, I focused really on domestic policy intellectuals because I think foreign policy is just a different category. So I haven't seen him playing that role, but I could see him being a fit in that role. Right. Uh, actually, uh, full disclosure, I worked many years ago with Michael Anton. He and I worked for the governor of California at the same time as speechwriters, but I kept up with him over the years. He's a very interesting guy on a lot of levels. Um, so absent those two fellows, there is not the thinker in the White House right now. But we're sitting in a town full of thinkers. So if you're Donald Trump and you're interested in having an intellectual in your White House, where do you turn? Well, that's an excellent question. And in fact, the point of my article was to suggest that Trump find somebody who can fit this category. And in some ways, it's not easy because Trump is someone who shunned the mainstream conservative think tanks as the mainstream conservative think tanks shunned him to some degree. So AEI, for example, would not be a a good uh, American enterprise, would not be necessarily a fruitful place for Trump to be looking for uh, intellectuals who support him. But I actually did come up with a list on on my own because I was thinking about it when I wrote this article that somebody might ask me that question. And so I thought of a couple of people. I think Larry Arne, who's the president of Hillsdale, a very smart guy who has been articulating the the Trump message and and I think was criticized by a lot of the the never-Trumpers but I, th- I think he might be able to fit that bill. Uh, bill Bennett, who also has gotten some criticism for being so, uh, fairly pro-Trump, has a lot of government experience, has good credibility in the conservative world. Uh, I know he's retired from the radio. I'm not sure he'd do it at this point. But uh, I think those are two people I thought of who might fit. Right. Now, it's interesting. As you look at the personnel uh, issues for this administration, uh, there's a problem right now. And the problem is jobs aren't getting filled. Now, 
within that problem. Uh, there's an issue of the process not working fast. Some people are stuck in the pipeline. But one of the problems, Tevi, is people don't want to apply. In other words, Washington's an interesting town in this regard. It's obviously a town where people you know, make very self-serving decisions. And so I'm making a decision. If I want to go work for this White House, what's in it for me? Translation, what does it lead me to? I cash out, what do I get? Do I get a big paying job? Do I get great stature? And there are a lot of people in this town who made the decision. This is not in my best interest to work for this administration. How do intellectuals look at this in terms of going into the administration? If you're if you're engaging Washington right now, net miners are net plus to work for Donald Trump. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think, first of all, there's a larger issue here, which is there are challenges to working in any administration. And I think it's getting more and more difficult. And it's fraught with peril to go in an administration. You get slings and arrows from everywhere. You're subject to ethics investigations. And you have to uh, fill out these really arduous financial disclosure forms that put all of your life out there. So there's a disincentive to anybody to work in an administration just in general. Right. With the Trump administration, I think the calculation for many people is, as you were saying, to some extent, what's in it for me, will I be able to get a job on the outside afterwards? Now, any Republican joining an administration knows that they're not going to find a job in the media or universities, and when I say the media, I mean the mainstream media, obviously Fox News is different, but the, the mainstream media, they're not going to find a job in universities. In the Trump administration, it's a little different because you're not sure major corporations will take you on if you'd worked for the Trump administration, because what we've seen, a lot of corporations backing away from Trump and uh, taking accepting pressure within the administration, not even to serve on boards mm-hmm. or outside commissions uh, with uh, for, for the president. So that writes off something else. And then conservative think tanks have often been a landing post for many conservatives who worked in administrations. And given the antipathy between many mainstream conservative think tanks and the Trump administration, you're not sure those would be a welcome home. So I think the job prospects for afterwards, I think, are a little bit narrower for someone who works in the Trump administration than perhaps someone who worked in a more standard, traditional Republican administration. Let's, let's talk a bit about the think tank. So at the Hoover Institution, for example, there is a long, rich tradition of fellows going into government for a few years, coming back out, going back in, coming back out. Um, this doesn't work with this administration. I'm not speaking about this think tank in particular, but think tankers in general. So if think tankers are not going into the Trump administration as they would have in, say, a Rubio administration or a Cruz administration, a more conventional Republican administration. Tevi, what is the role of a Washington think tank in the age of Donald Trump? Well, I'm certainly one who has made a study of think tanks and have made my career in think tanks. I'm a big fan of think tanks. I don't think that they are necessarily a landing post for conservatives who are out of government. It's not just a shadow government. I think that they come up with good conservative policy ideas that administrations can incorporate and Congress can incorporate. And I think that's the best role of the think tank. Even if you have an administration that brings, that that encourages conservative think tanks to hire people, we're not really talking about hundreds of people. I mean, it's, it's a relatively small handful. So I think that the real role of a conservative think tank, and now more than ever, is to lay out what good conservative policy ideas are, hopefully actionable ones. It's not just theory pie in the sky stuff, but things that an administration could take on and put into place. And we've had a history of good conservative ideas coming from think tanks. And uh, welfare reform, for example, is, is a famous one. The surge in Iraq came from AI. So 
you do have a history of good conservative ideas coming from these think tanks. And I think that is the main role of think tanks, more than being a happy home for people who leave an administration. So you see think tanks as being active, let's say, on the op-ed front in terms of holding meetings in Washington conferences, things like that, trying to push ideas out that way. Uh, in terms of interacting with the Trump administration, though, actually talking to Trump people, or do you just showcase the ideas and hope that they osmose their way down Pennsylvania Avenue? No, I think it's malpractice if think tank people just put out an op-ed and think that's the end of the day. Mm -hmm. you, you need to market this stuff aggressively. You should go on TV, radio, Hoover podcasts, et cetera, mm -hmm. to put out your ideas. But you should also be reaching out to the administration, to Congress, to interested journalists in, in your area and making sure that people know about the ideas so that they have a chance of going forward. Um, let me give, just give one example. A friend of mine named Sander Gerber is someone who uh, is in the investment world in New York, and he was very concerned about what's known as pay for slay, which is where the Palestinian Authority pays the families of terrorists if they're someone from their family murdered uh, innocent Israelis. And it's just an outrageous policy that any U.S. dollars, U.S. government dollars go to put this out. And right. Sander is affiliated with, um, you know, with the Wilson Center, and he started writing op-eds about it. He started meeting members of Congress, and we actually passed the Taylor Force Act in large part because of his efforts. So, I mean, I really applaud him for that kind of thing, and I think other think tankers can do that, that kind of thing. Interesting, but he worked with Congress. I know he was also talking to administration people, so, so okay, because so Congress had to pass it. But so yeah, he found he, administration people to talk so to. He was talking to everybody. All right, because that was my question. If you have an idea like this, who do you talk to, let's right. say, in the White House? Two people come to mind in terms of how to get to this president. It's his daughter and his son-in-law. Mm -hmm. Now, I know actually that Ivanka Trump shows up at right. sort of random places in Washington. She was at a Grover Norquist meeting, I think, last week, of all places. Uh, but... It's not a place I would expect her, and the, um, the, the fashion choices of the people there would exactly. not necessarily correspond to her ideals. So. <laughs> well, it's a room full of makeup, so I think we could agree. Uh, but Ivanka and Jared Kushner are not what we would consider conservative intellectuals. Sure, that's fair. But the, look, there are a lot of smart people in the Trump White House who have conservative credentials. Jeremy Katz at the National Economic Council, someone who worked with me in the Bush White House and is, is smart and knowledgeable and has a conservative background. Andrew Bremberg at the Domestic Policy Council also has a good reputation and is well-known among conservatives. So, and, and you mentioned earlier Stephen Miller. I right. think that's somebody you could reach out to with, with ideas. So I, I think there are people there in, in that White House. Uh, Paul Winfrey, who came from Heritage, is Deputy Domestic Policy Director. I, I, I think if you have ideas, you want to get them out there, I think you need to be reaching out to the administration. All right, so getting back to, you've written about the historical uh, narrative of this with, with White Houses. What if Trump insists upon going it alone for the next three years, seven years, however long his presidency continues? In other words, he continues presidency Tevi without the in-house intellectual. And let's say that he survives. Is he going to be an outlier as the one president who did not do this? Or would other presidents perhaps look at this and think, I don't need that person in my White House? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and it is something that I was thinking about just in the context of the last presidential campaign, where my read of history was that the person who gets that backing of the conservative intellectual establishment tends to do pretty well. And in fact, in 2000, 
George W. Bush went to Hoover and had a famous meeting right. where he talked to many of the top scholars at Hoover. And Marty Anderson, the uh, Hoover scholar who had worked on the Reagan administration, looked around at the room and he rem- remembered saying, he was nodding with the other Hoover scholars saying, hey, this guy's pretty good. And that helped Bush win the conservative intellectual establishment over. So I've long thought that, that winning that conservative intellectual establishment is important to winning the nomination and then eventually the presidency. Obviously, it did not work out that way because Trump was not reaching out to that group and is not from that world. But there were also 17 candidates. It was a strange election. There was a lot going on. So it might be seen as an anomaly. If, however, there's an eight-year Trump administration and it's seen as a huge success and everybody has huzzas and <laughs> at the end, uh, confetti flies when he leaves, uh, for good reasons, not for bad, then perhaps the conservative intellectual establishment will have been overrated. But I'm, I'm not prepared to count it out yet. Right. So I guess the question is, will this continue to be sort of a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants presidency? Look, I, I think the administration can make changes, and I think it has made changes. I like the changes under General Kelly. I think they've put a policy process in place. I think they've buttoned down the White House in terms of who has access to the president. I think some of the stranger aides have left, and I think uh, there's been a, a more normalization of the type of people in there. So I think that this administration can can make changes. Uh, I, I wrote something about the hurricane response of the Trump administration and the people who were responsible for hurricane response I thought were good, responsible people with experience in this area. So it's, I, I think the administration can make changes. And again, one reason I wrote that Steve Bannon piece was not to praise Steve Bannon because that was not really the message of the piece, but it was to say it helps to have someone who is thinking for you, who is laying out your vision, laying out your strategy, and also sharing it with people who are willing to be out there advocating for you. You can't, you you might have 30 million plus Twitter followers, but you can't be the only voice out there defending yourself. Right. Uh, Did you watch Bannon on 60 Minutes? I don't watch 60 Minutes, but I do listen. So I listen to the interview. (laughs) You listen to the interview. And did you read the article? It was in, I think, Salon or New Republic the other day, which looked like they read your article and pushed back and said Steve Bannon is not an intellectual. Yeah, I, I did read that article, and uh, it did look like they read my article, but didn't actually quote me or refer to me. But that's that's fine. It's a, so, what, part of the what, game. what but, is your take on Steve Bannon? It's you. You talk about him being an intellectual president. Do you consider him to be an intellectual? I don't, in large part because of this standard that I established. And a lot of people ask me my definition of an intellectual when I wrote that first book. I think you have to have some kind of pre-existing intellectual reputation. I think having some kind of scholarly background. I mean, I think there are kind of metrics that you can look to determine if someone's an intellectual. But is Steve Bannon someone who's interested in ideas, who writes about ideas, who's familiar with the idea world? Absolutely. So you can get caught up in the semantics of whether Steve Bannon is an actual intellectual in the vein of Pat Moynihan, Anderson, Marty Anderson, and right. Arthur Schlesinger. And I think everybody who's objective would say, no, he's not an intellectual like that. But is he a guy who can appreciate the power of ideas and talk to people who are intellectuals and get them on his side? Potentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's say General Kelly, as the chief of staff, decided we need somebody like this in the White House. Tebby, how would you bring that person into the White House where would you position them? Because there is a nuance to doing this. You can't announce that Tebby Troy today is a special assistant to the president and he is our ideas guy. Uh, you'll be mocked left and right in the city. You'll be a big, fat, inviting target is what you'll be. That's true. So there's kind, of a, there's kind of a trick here. You have to bring that person in, not tell the world necessarily, make a big deal out of this, but also let it be known at the same time, though, that you do have somebody in the, in the White House who's 
who's you know, kind of being the ideas machine. So how would you go about doing this if you were General Kelly? Well, first of all, the person would probably have to be a higher rank than special assistant to the president. It would have to be a, an assistant to the president or possibly a deputy assistant to okay. the president. And the ranks actually matter within the White House context. Okay, so, so in the pecking order, he, has to, he or she has to be a somebody. Somebody and more senior. Right. I think the person has to have some kind of reputation as a credible intellectual, but also a reputation as someone who's been supportive of Trump. Right. If you just take someone who's uh, right. hostile to Trump, I don't think that would work. No. Just a person, or would that person have to come in with a team? I think there's two ways of doing it. If you hire just the straight-up intellectual type, that person doesn't necessarily need a whole team. But if you hire a new strategist, let's say a replacement for Bannon, mm -hmm. and that person brought with him, so the, the Bannon replacement were an assistant to the president and a senior strategist, and this could get around your problem of the, the widely mocking. And then that person brought with him a deputy assistant to the president who was in charge of strategic initiatives. And, uh, there was an office of strategic initiatives in the Bush White House. I think they still have that in, in this White House. And so you, you gave it a title like that as opposed to chief thinker. Then that person could be tasked with the outreach that was required mm -hmm. without necessarily being you know, Trump's propeller head, per se. Right. And let's assume that Kelly, being a military man, he gives people very specific missions. So what's your mission to that person? Your mission is to articulate the vision of this administration to the conservative intellectual world, to let us know what's going on if there are things that are problematic in that world in terms of or being criticized unfairly, right? I mean, they, the never-Trumpers are criticizing him. That's not news. But if he's saying things that are either alienating the safe spacers or the ever-Trumpers, I think that would be something that this person would have to report. And finding a way to communicate regularly with that crowd in a way that makes the crowd feel that they're on board with what the mission of the administration is and that they're willing in their writings to say positive things about the administration. Interesting. We haven't talked about Democrats in this podcast. We did a little. We did a little <laughs> sure bit, but let's talk a little bit more about them uh, right now. Um, Hillary Clinton right now is going around the country, and she's selling her book uh, with the rather interesting title, What Happened? And so I'm always worried about books that can be both a statement and a question at the <laughs> same time. Uh, but she's talking about the ways in which her campaign failed. Um, it was a campaign really without a core message when you got down to it. It was a lot of cobbled together ideas, a lot of things thrown on the wall to see what stuck or not. But there didn't seem to be an ideas person within her campaign. Well, that, that's absolutely true. She lacked an ideas person. Although what I found is that the Democrats haven't necessarily had the one idea person to the extent the Republicans had over the last 40 years. But look, the, the Hillary Clinton book, I haven't read it yet, but I've listened to a bunch of her interviews and the one with uh, David Remnick from The New Yorker where she lists a litany of excuses and just excuse after excuse why she lost. And then she says not to make excuses. I just thought that was priceless. Right, but you've um, written about Republican presidencies right. and the trend to have an intellectual presence. Yeah. Does it also apply to Democratic presidencies? Well, I think it helps. And, and in fact, the trend started with John F. Kennedy, who brought in Arthur Schlesinger, and um, he had John Kenneth Galbraith on the campaign, although Galbraith eventually became ambassador to India. But he saw the value of intellectuals. He saw that there was actually some appeal, electoral appeal, to having smart people on your side, not necessarily that you'd want them to run for office themselves, but to say, uh, the president's listening to the smartest people. I think that helps. Schlesinger also served as a bit of a lightning rod for all the criticism of the liberals in the administration. We just go to Schlesinger, and the rest of the administration was uh, inoculated to some degree. So I, I think Democrats have used this intellectual role in the past successfully. Hillary, 
she didn't just not have an Linux show. She didn't have any core ideas that she was running on. And um, I read the uh, Amy Pardons and Jonathan Allen book on the campaign Shattered, which was really a fascinating read. Although I will warn people that I had it in my house and my 10-year-old just picked it up and flipped through it. And he said, Dad, there are a lot of bad words in this book because <laughs> there's just so many, uh, so many, so much cursing from the, the Clinton team constantly. That was, it seemed to be the, their mode of communication. Right. But you had a system there that they describe in the book where nobody could talk to the candidate other than going through Huma. Right. You couldn't have a direct conversation with Hillary. So you're not going to have an intellectual in there who can channel the, the person's ideas, the candidate's ideas, if you have to go through this weird Huma process. So it just it wasn't conducive to it. Now, I remember in the build-up to the Bill Clinton campaign when Clinton was running, he made great light of the fact that he was talking to the likes of Bill Galston and Lane Carmack and Democrats who were at the Democratic Leadership Council and were offering a new vision for the Democratic Party. I'm paying attention to that because I see interesting situation going for Democrats in 2020. Um, one thing I look at is they could be facing a situation not unlike the Republicans did in 2016 where they have a very large field, but not necessarily an alpha candidate, an overwhelming favorite, somebody who just has a huge standing, somebody who has an enormous financial and you know, ground structure where they just overwhelm the opposition or, or like a tank, they'll just outlast the competition, which is what the Republicans had in 2016. They didn't have a dominant candidate, which opens it up for someone like a Donald Trump to step in and seize the moment. So maybe that happens to the Democrats. But the other thing I see happening to the Democrats right now, Tevi, is they're undergoing something of an identity crisis right now. And interestingly enough, when you look at what passes for litmus tests with Democrats, one of the major litmus tests for Democrats right now is what? Universal health care an idea pushed forward by a guy who's not a Democrat, Bernie Sanders. So I'm curious if you think that as the Democrats move toward 2020, if you're going to see a war of Democratic ideas start to emerge and the question of what is a real, quote-unquote, real Democrat in this day and age. Yeah, in, in terms of Sanders, what he's really for that I think is the leftward push is the single payer, not universal. I think there's a distinction there because uh, I've written with Hoover fellow Lan Hee Chen about how it would be good to get to universal health care, right. but you've got to do it through market means. So that, I, yeah. I think that's an important distinction. But I think this single payer thing is really fraught with peril for the Democrats and in two ways. On the one hand, if you don't support it, you're going to get hit from the left and they're going to be threatened with loss of grassroots support and, and donations. And you're already seeing some of that. But if you do support it, it literally would mean the end of the employer-sponsored health care system, which some people might say, oh, well, that's great because we think there's uh, distortionary effects or whatever. But 177 million Americans get their health care through employers. So that's the majority of Americans get their health care that way. Plus, the majority of those people are extremely happy with it. And the Sanders bill even says that it's unlawful after this plan is fully phased in to have employer-sponsored care to offer what the, the government's offering. And so that would be, A, a major disruption, but also there's $14 trillion that goes in to employer-sponsored care, 10 to $11 trillion from employers at various levels, government level and, uh, and private sector employers, plus another 4 or so trillion that comes from the people who are contributing premiums to that employer-sponsored system. So how are you going to replace that 14 to $15 trillion? That's a lot of money that goes into the employer-sponsored system that Sanders would magically have to find funding for, and you know how he would find it. He would tax the heck out of us. Right. Um, Tevi, is it fair to say that Bernie Sanders divides the left into multi-parts the way that Donald Trump divides the right into multi-parts? I'm not sure of that because you don't really see that much criticism well, let's from take it, Sanders. Let's and take it down this road there. 
there is a portion in the Democrats who, let's say, are ever Bernies. They like, they like that socialist view, and that's what they want. I wonder if there's a portion of Democrats who would be never Bernies. And they might be never Bernies because they have an attachment to Mrs. Clinton, or they just think that Bernie is electoral suicide if you run him. But then I wonder if there's a third category of liberals who maybe are sort of safe space, if you will, like the like the source. Or I could just be completely off base here. So I have not seen the emergence of the never Bernies. Right. The only latent never Bernie we're seeing a little bit is Mrs. Clinton, who's been critical of him in her recent book tour. But for the most part, he's not only been off the hook, but you had Obama telling Hillary not to hit Bernie too hard. So there's a sense on the left, I guess no enemies on the left, as it was the old uh, Marxist dictum. So I think in some ways I was proud of conservatives in this last campaign because conservatives were willing to criticize Trump. I think conservatives are much more willing to criticize their own and say that we have a set of principles and the principles matter more than an electoral victory per se, whereas on the left it's, it's just about winning. And so to the extent that that is the case, that's why you haven't seen Bernie criticize as much. Now, if you have a fairer election race, I mean, the last one was really the, the, the primary was Bernie against Hillary, but all the, the deck was stacked for Hillary. But if you have a fairer, wide-open race where you don't have Debbie Wasserman Schultz with her finger on the scale, then maybe Bernie will be more open for criticism. But we haven't seen it yet. Right, okay. 2020 is still way down the road, even though the Washington Post is already speculating who's going to run against Trump. But let's look at it from within the conservative space. I don't want you to predict that a conservative will challenge Donald Trump, but as you look at your three categories of conservatives, the evers, the nevers, and the safe spaces, do you think a candidate, a challenge to Trump, could emerge from one of those categories? For example, do you think, would it be feasible that a ever-Trumper, disappointed that he did not fight for the wall, could a ever-Trumper challenge him on the purity standpoint. Could a never-Trumper challenge claiming this is for the heart and soul of the party? See Kasich, comma, John. Yeah. Or could a safe space conservative run against him? So I think this is going to be an important determination of Trump's prospects because I don't see an ever-Trumper challenging him. I think that's off the table. I do see a never-Trumper, see Kasich, comma, John, likely challenging okay, well, let's, let's him. And then the question is, does a safe spacer run? Okay, so you don't think... You, so you, you're saying, in essence, that the, the ever-Trumpers will come back to him eventually, even even if he lets them down on the wall, ultimately, and tries to sell, well, I didn't build a wall, but I sure as heck fortified the current structure that's there. Ultimately, they'll forgive him. They'll come home. Within certain reasonable parameters. Right. I mean, there there are probably lines he can't, he can't cross. But I would say that it's likely that the ever-Trumpers do not challenge him from uh, from the right in a primary. Okay. And what about the safe space conservatives? Well, I think that's the big, big question. The never-Trumpers, I think there will be a candidate there. If the safe spacers credibly challenge him, I think that would show a real weakness on his part within his own flank. And as we know, when you are challenged with a serious primary opponent when you're sitting president, your electoral prospects aren't uh, aren't as strong. We saw this with uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980. He was challenged by Ted Kennedy from his flank. And obviously Bush was challenged by Pat Buchanan in 92 from his flank. And both of those guys lost their re-election efforts. The only people who've lost re-election efforts in the last 40 years. So I think that the severity and strength of a safe spacer challenge would show real weakness on the Trump part. And at this point, I don't see it happening, but it could.
Okay, um, so we did mention John Kasich. I mean, he just he adds up on so many obvious fronts. He will be without a job come 2020. He steps down as governor of Ohio next year. Um, the man obviously has an appetite for national politics. He says he's not interested in the presidency, but boy, he does a lot of talking about the subject at the same time. You could see consultants and others really making a run at him and saying, do it, John, for the good of the party. Uh, but who else besides John Kasich would you be looking at in that category? That, that's also an excellent question. At this point, I think it would be politically perilous for an existing or sitting politician to openly challenge Trump in, in a primary. You could right. criticize him, right. as Ben Sass, who I think is an excellent senator from Nebraska, has done, but I'm not sure it's politically viable or fruitful at this point to come forward with a primary challenge to the sitting Republican president. So at this point, I, I don't see it happening, and I really can't put somebody out there. Okay, final question, because we're coming up against a deadline. You have another interview to do in a few minutes. Um, you're a swamp creature, for better or worse. Gee, thanks. <laughs> uh, I was born in Washington, D.C., so I'm a swamp creature, too. I rose out of the primordial ooze. Uh, a friend of mine explained Washington very well to me. Uh, this is a friend of mine who's been a lobbyist in this town for a long time. He knows the culture of the place. He said, Bill, to understand Washington right now is to understand that Washington is a tribal city and that there's one tribe called the Republicans and another tribe called the Democrats. And even if you don't belong to a Republican Party or a Democratic Party, if you're right of center or left of center, you identify with one of the two tribes. That's what side you're on. And so he said, the problem is this. The guy sitting in the White House doesn't belong to either tribe, and the two tribes can't figure out what's going on here. I think your friend is very wise. Right. I think that is a good point. For most of his career, Trump appeared to be part of one tribe, right? and he was doing fundraisers for Hillary and for Chuck Schumer and just kind of had a New York liberal attitude. In recent months, obviously, he's been more on the conservative tribe, but conservatives have had distrust for him in part because of his past backing of Democrats, but also because of this question that they're just not sure what his ideology is. Mm -hmm. But I would say, for the most part, the Republican tribe seems to have, with reservations, accepted him. And that's why I think that the safe space plus ever-Trumper coalition probably outnumbers the never-Trumper. Not probably. I think it does over uh, outweigh the never-Trumper category at this point. But again, time will tell. Good stuff. Tebby Troy, thanks for coming in today. I enjoyed it. Let's do this again soon. I would love to. Thank you. Very good. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Tevi Troy is also on Twitter. And his Twitter handle is at Tevi Troy. That's at T-E-V-I-T-R-O-Y. And you can find all of his astute writing on his website, and that's www.tevitroy.org. Anything else you'd like to plug while I've got you in here? I'm a big fan of Area 45. I listen to it regularly, and I think Bill does a great job. Thank you, Tevi. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows to your inbox every business day. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. 
For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.